Okay, today we talked with Miles. Let's hear a quick introduction from him before we jump into the full conversation. Hello, happy to be with you today, Demetrios, and uh, Miles Everson from Austin, Texas. I'm the CEO of MBO Partners, and we're helping enterprises and professional independents work together more easily. We've got a great platform business that makes that happen, uh, and I'm delighted to be here with you today uh, to share some thoughts. Welcome back to Are You a Robot, everyone. I am happy that you are joining us. If this is your first time, this is a series where we aim to tackle some of the greatest questions and challenges that stem from AI and related technologies. The way that we're doing that is by gathering some of the best and brightest minds in their fields, and they come on here and talk with me about what they're doing, how they see the state of the world right now, if there's any best practices that we can take away as a community, and just general banter. So if you enjoy this, I highly encourage you to jump into our Slack community. The conversation doesn't end here. You can come say hi, let us know what you're working on, what you're passionate about, and I'm sure you'll find plenty of people who will love to talk to you about anything AI ethics, governance, data, all of that good stuff is happening in our Slack community. So jump in. You can find the link below in the description. Last but not least, I want to give a huge shout out to our sponsors. This episode is being powered by For Humanity. In case you do not know who For Humanity is or what they do, they're an independent organization that aims to foster trust in AI. And they're doing that by independent audits of AI systems. It's incredible work that they're doing. Actually, Miles is involved in the project. It's all nonprofit, really, really exciting stuff. You may have seen a few seasons ago, we had on here one of the founders of For Humanity, Ryan, and he's going to be coming back at the end of this season to chat with me for the roundup. But until then, you can click on the link below in the description to find out more about For Humanity. See how you can get involved if you want to. And without further ado, let's bring it to the conversation that I had with Miles. Are you a robot? Excellent. Well, it is a pleasure to have you on here, Miles. I'm looking forward to the conversation we're about to get into. And I know that before we hit record, we were already talking about guitars and all that good stuff. But that's not really what we're here to talk about today. I think it would probably be nice for everyone out there listening to orient themselves a little bit and hear a bit of background on how you came to be where you're at and what your journey has looked like so far. Sure. Yeah, so... Uh... I, I spent about uh, three decades almost with uh, PwC, and when I was there, I was in the consulting business, and so we spent, uh, we rebuilt a business from effectively nothing back in 2005 uh, to be a 10 plus billion dollar business, so lots of growth, lots of fun. Um, I lived in uh, many different cities, including, I spent some time up in Canada and Toronto, and New, New, New York area, and then uh, got here. And the, the way I got to what I'm focusing on now is uh, about eight years ago, 
I had a vision of fractionalizing the human capital market for high-end professionals. And what I mean by that is creating a liquid market. So we did that at uh, PwC to make it possible for independents to work with big companies. And then when I decided to uh, move on from PwC and go do my next chapter, which was to go build a business and you know really scale it and take it to another level, that's when I that's how I got to MBO. And so um, we're in the we're in the business of helping people do the work they love and the way they want and have the freedom to do that. And so. Um, at the same time, we help big companies optimize their workforce and get the right talent and on time with the right skills. And so we're having a great time doing it. Okay. So before we start even talking about getting the right talent and, and all of that and how AI plays a part in it, what drove you to leave, I'm sure, a pretty cush job at PwC and jump off the cliff and do the whole entrepreneurial thing? Yeah, you know, it's, um, I spent, uh, I was kind of an entrepreneur within PwC. I was building lots of businesses with, you know, just a, a fantastic brand. Um, you know, lots of, lots of great learning and memories from PwC, the people and the colleagues there. And I said, you know, I, I just want to give this a go with something that doesn't come with such a big brand and, you know, the, the significant oomph behind a great company like that. Um, and so I said, let's go, let's go give it a go at something else. And when I left, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do as it related to, I had a few different options and this was one of them. And so I, I landed on this one because I think it's, I think we're changing the way society works. And this was even before COVID, this was two years ago. So COVID has just been an accelerant to the rate of change. And so you know, remote work is, has high, high correlation to independent professionals. People now know what it's like to, you know, work from home. It's kind of part of the whole at-home revolution that we see going on across the world. And so being part of something that, you know, is right at the center of driving the way people will make their livelihoods and feed their families is, is exciting. Um, hmm. So I've, I'm not afraid of risk. I, I look at risk and understand it, and then I take it and manage it. So... <laughs> That's probably the most direct question or answer to your question. And that is a great segue into another question that I wanted to ask you. And it's really around the risks of looking at matching algorithms and how we can mitigate those biases that come with it and the risks that are there. What are these risks that are associated with that? Yeah, so I, I have a general perspective um, that I'm sure some people would debate, but I think that, you know, technology amplifies human attributes at the most individual level. You see it in social media channels, for example. People say things on social media that they'd never say if they were face-to-face -face <laughs> with somebody. And so you, it starts to amplify the human. And what AI is doing is putting further amplification to that. And so to the extent there are biases, and there are biases, I would argue everybody is biased um, in some fashion, whether it's an unconscious or conscious bias. And so, you know, when I look at specifically AI as it relates to talent and companies and how they match each other, you know, how they get a match done, et cetera, the, the way most of these uh, algorithms get trained is by the, is massive amounts of 
public data matched up against private data. And then you look at to see if you can get a match between a, a human's, you know, their resume, and then you, tr you compare that to a job rack. But the bias that comes in is all of those matches get either approved or disapproved, i.e. dispositioned by humans. So a good recruiter says, yep, that was a good match. That wasn't a good match. And so what happens is whatever the biases are of the dispositioner starts to get embedded in the model, in the algorithm. And so that's, that's just a natural challenge um, with using AI on the front end for matching, right? And it's, it's, a, it's a risk. And so I would describe it this way. I, I, just from my experience, the, um, the less structured and consistent the data is, the structure of the data, the higher the probability is that you're going to get bias embedded into how that data gets used. And so if you're, if you're doing something with just purely structured data, it's easier to reduce bias. So for example, I want somebody that lives in, in a postal code of X. They either live in the postal code or they don't. That's, there's not really any bias there. The only bias was the decision that you needed them from that postal code. And so, um, on the other hand, if you say, I want somebody who's really good at working with people, that's very unstructured. What, what constitutes good with working with people? Uh, and so as we've looked at this and studied it, um, I think that the primary risks are the biases that sit with the dispositioner of the tra training the algorithm. And then the other risks are, uh, interestingly enough, most companies are not very good at writing job requisitions. Um, resumes are better written than job recs. They <laughs> 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 just are. Um, so and you, need, you need to get better at both of those. When you're using unstructured, the definition of what you want is more important. The world will get there. It just hasn't quite gotten there yet. Mm. So it's there's a lot of it that is coming to who is labeling the data and who is giving that ground truth of, yes, this was good or this was bad. And then that person's unconscious or conscious biases gets embedded into that model that is being trained effectively on this data that is coming through. And then you have the abstract biases or the abstract, what you're looking for is very much abstract, like you're talking about. It's not just a yes or no question. It's more, we're looking for some soft skills or we're looking for someone who's good with people or someone who can, who can manage conflicts well. How can you train an algorithm on that without having your own perception of what conflict resolution is? And so I could see that completely. I think I may have gotten a little excited and jumped ahead of myself. We should probably talk about what exactly these matching algorithms are, how they work, what fields they're used for. Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll tell you what is, that's a, that's a really important component here because what, so you're using, you're trying to match things based on skills, job titles, geography, industry, maybe years of experience, um, certifications. And 
a job title might not create as much bias, right? But let's say, for example, you're going to match on those things. But presented with those matching attributes is the person's name, their picture, their ethnicity, their race, their age. All of those things have potential for un unconscious bias on them. Right. So when you're using when you're going to have somebody disposition and they look at the resume, do you want them to look at a resume with the name, with the picture, with the ethnicity, race, age? Because you can reduce the bias by taking those off both for the dispositioner and take them off in the algorithm. You see, so so there's there's lots of decisions to be made. And then there's other people that would that would say, well, I want my algorithm to make sure that we're doing a good job at diversity and inclusion. So I want to know some of those attributes where you get adverse selection because of those. They can create adverse selection. So I want to make sure I get positive selection. Well, you're when you do that, it could be easily argued that you're now embedding a bias into the algorithm. And you might want that bias in the algorithm. So, so the, the thing yeah. I like best about these biases, like when you read a resume, uh, and it's it's usually unconscious bias. But if you are a um, if you are a first chair member of an orchestra, violinist, you know, viola, but oh, your first chair, when you see somebody's resume who plays for a city orchestra, you're going to have an unconscious bias that kicks in. You're going to favor that selection at least as a candidate. And you, you can look around companies. You can see many companies where the, the, the teams are very much little pods of teams where you can see that there's biases that have been embedded. Because people hire people that have similarities to them. Uh -huh. So it's very, I'm not an expert on uh, diversity and inclusion. I wouldn't pretend to be, but I've spent a lot of my career, you know, working on it and trying to overcome uh, the challenges that come with um, the lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, so I, I raise that because that's a really hot topic right now as it relates to matching algorithms for human capital. Agreed. Mm -hmm. So one thing that you mentioned there, which is really interesting to think about is how then if we're doing it already without the algorithm, and then, like you said, the technology is only amplifying that, how can we make sure that doesn't happen? Do we have to start at the human level first and, and then try and bring it to the technology? Or do you feel like that can be corrected through the technological level? Well, there's certainly um, methods and techniques that some companies are using to try to correct that at the technology level. But I think there's some very um, pragmatic and practical things you can do at the human level to start to minimize those biases. You know, and I, I would say that most companies have to be extremely flexible and iterative as they think about how they want to use data and algorithms for matching. And so you learn, like, you may say, I want to have a bias in here of X, but whatever bias you put into an algorithm, you're now going to execute that bias at scale, not just for one recruiter. <laughs> yeah. 
And do you feel like that should be something that people are told when they are being screened that A, they're being screened by a machine learning algorithm and B, the machine learning algorithm has these biases that we've embedded in them? Yeah, I don't, I don't think you could just, I don't think you know all the biases that mm -hmm. are embedded in them. So, so let's say you had five recruiters doing the dispositions and each recruiter has a particular job class. You may not even be aware of the bias in each of those five recruiters. Right mm -hmm. now, I do think um, it's fair to say that and create transparency around that you are using AI and or matching technology because not it's not all AI, right? But you got matching technology mm -hmm. um, to help um, qualify and narrow the scope of candidates, right? So even today, I know, again, some people would say that they could do a great match on all types of people using AI. My experience is at the moment, AI is an efficiency and augmentation tool for the recruiters. It's really hard. It depends on, again, the, the less structured the role is, the harder it is to rely on AI to get you a reliable match. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and let's talk about that for a second too. The job criteria that you were talking about and how poorly written they are. And a lot of times, and I know this within the data science and machine learning community, if you look at some of these job requirements that they're asking for, it's outrageous. And it's become almost like a meme because they're asking for things like experience with a technology that hasn't been out for longer than three years and they're asking for five years experience with it. And so it just shows that the company A doesn't know much about the field and B, they don't really know what they're looking for. And so <laughs> is there a way maybe that this AI or some of this technology could then be reversed and help people get clear on what they're looking for? Or is that totally off the table for technology to be able to help save? No, I, I, think, I think there is a way to do this, but in, instead of asking about the attributes of the inputs. So when I say attributes of the inputs, a job rec kind of says, we want you to have these types of skills, this many years experience. And then resumes tend to say, here's my experience. Um, and the experience is described as activities that have taken place. And not as much emphasis is put on the outputs that have been created. This is a little bit different in the creator economy because in the creator economy, they, you will come with your portfolio and you'll say, here's what I've produced. If you like what I've produced, i.e. the outcome, you should use me. If you don't like what I produce, you should get somebody else basically. But in the process of matching, I think a lot could be done if there was better clarity and focus on what is the outcome you want produced instead of the attributes of the exper the historical experience from an activity oh, perspective yeah. or a role perspective. And I think you also, by doing that, can reduce bias. So, so what if a 12-year-old was better at producing a particular outcome than a 40-year-old? If you didn't know that, you might hire the 12-year-old if you just based it on outcomes. At least they'd make mm -hmm. your short list. And I'm using an extreme example intentionally to make the point to take age 
out of the equation as it relates to who the qualified candidates may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that is, you draw a really interesting point there with the creator economy being as it is, and it's very common to show your work and show what you've produced. But it it gets a little more muddy when you're in a job like machine learning engineer what can you show? A lot of times there's a lot of IP around things and you can't say, I created this algorithm or I put this algorithm into production because potentially it's classified, right? So how can you do that with these other jobs that aren't so open as the as a designer or a musician for that matter? Well, I, I think, uh, and I'm not a data scientist expert, so I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here, right? So even as a data scientist expert, though, you could say um, I was able to take um, 3,000 different variables, um, 1,800 of which were structured and 1,200 were unstructured, and I was able to create the insights to grow revenue at this company by 15% or to improve the productivity of the recruiting process so that a person presented to a human for the final determination, we had a nine out of 10 hit rate instead of one out of 10 hit rates. Hmm. Right? So, so there's way to describe what the result or the benefit outcome was of the activity instead of the activity. Because the other alternative is you say, I have 10 years of experience doing data science in human capital. So what? Maybe you're not good at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe those 10 years were <laughs> just getting coffee for somebody yeah. else. And so now I want to I want to jump into something a little different, change gears in a way and talk about these matching algorithms and this AI that's being used. How much of this data is coming from open and public news or social networks or areas that we wouldn't necessarily think were being watched on, or maybe we didn't think. Now we all kind of know that uh, an employer, a potential employer is probably going to go look around and Google our name or look on Facebook for us, even though it may be illegal in some jurisdictions. How much is the AI algorithm taking those things into account or these matching algorithms, how much of that is being looked at? I think, um, I think the data sets feeding many of these algorithms are coming from public sources, but they tend to be more along the lines of how somebody has presented themselves on a job board or in replying to another public, publicly replying to it, to another job rec, right? So when I when I looked at a lot of the technologies that were being used for matching, you know, they'd say, well, we've trained our model on 20 million resumes. And so when you say, well, where do you get those 20 million resumes? Well, we scrape job boards every day. Ah, huh. so in that case, the people that posted to the job board did not think somebody else was coming and scraping that job board just didn't like they couldn't so they're training the models on that now you can debate the quality of the training that you get from being that generic on your 
data set, which I think you can get some really odd results. You touched on it a minute ago. So if you, with a lot of these matching engines that I've seen, if you put in, um, I want a five year person that's done Oracle and I need them to be a system analyst. It's not that you necessarily get underqualified people. The algorithm will present you with a 25-year CTO or CIO that happen to have Oracle on their resume because they put the weighting on years of experience to be higher than other factors. Because that's the other thing. Usually in the matching, there, there's weighting. So what's more important? Is it more important that the person live in the postal code or is it more important that they have industry experience or is it more important on the functional? And think of it as you can turn dials. That's why I think of this as augmentation of a recruiter more than it is an absolute science on matching at this point. Right. So a recruiter can say, gee, I didn't get enough of the types of people I liked. So I'm going to turn this dial up because I thought I would have gotten more people with, you know, four to six years experience than a bunch of 20 years. So I'm going to really be clear that it's got to be no more than five years experience. So speaking of these CTOs and C-suite execs. In your current role and what you're doing at MBO Partners, how do you educate different boards and C-suite on the risk and risk management around AI and, and around some of these technologies that you're talking about? And what do you feel are some of those key risks that you're continuously iterating or uh, reiterating to the different board members and yeah so and I think executives. it's um I'll try to make it p perhaps even overly simple but um, there's there's a fair bit of um, evidence out there that kind of the the remaining central authority, of trust that exists in the world is with businesses. It is not with governments. Just as I'm, I'm speaking at the populist level for a moment, right? And so businesses have both an opportunity and a responsibility, I'll say, to continue to enhance that trust equation with society. And the best way to destroy that trust equation is by either the unauthorized acquisition or the unauthorized use of personal data, right? And so one is just the acquisition question. Are you being transparent that you are acquiring their data, okay? I might be more than happy to have my data acquired as long as I know that the only purpose it's gonna be used for is to help get me my next project. See, like using my data to get my next project, that's a great experience for me. So it's personalization to me that says, here's the types of projects Miles would like to do, or the types of jobs Miles would like to do. That's different than taking my data and presenting me with a financial product offer from some company where you sold my data to them. And so I think it's those two things, is it's the acquisition of the data to be transparent about it. And most people want great personalized experiences. So just be transparent that you're acquiring it. The second component, though, is you got to be very clinical on what the use of that data will and will not be. And let the individual determine the usage. Now, you get some of that, you know, and when you can say, well, 
you know, an, an email comes and you can click what you want them to use or it's on a, you know, on an application. Um, but I don't know that it's specific enough yet at this point. So the more tailored it gets, when I say get it, the use of the data, the more tailored the options are for use of data, I think the less risky it is for companies because then they will have been using that data in a way that the user said was acceptable for them, which will help strengthen the trust equation. Mm. A huge point that you just mentioned is we've lost faith and we've lost our trust in governments and we still have, to some degree, depending on the business, trust in the business. And one great way to destroy that trust is by doing shady things with our data when we are going and interacting with that company. And automatically, I think about some of the lesser ways that our data is being used. And you look at like Facebook and you look at Google and how we're being tracked and how we are being really sold to, like you were talking about, in ways that maybe we think it's good or it's bad, but for the most part, we don't know everything that's going on with our data. And I'm wondering about your stance with this, because I know that you have some words on how we can still have that personalization without collecting all of the data and data hoarding effectively and knowing everything about everyone. It's, it's, the, use, it's the use of the data. So um, when, when a, so the reason people don't trust governments as much as business is there's two reasons. One is governments act as central authorities. They effectively tell you what they're going to do. Or they, or they just do it and don't tell you. And so people don't trust them. And trust yeah. in their in existing governments has been declining for decades, by the way. Gallup has some great data on this about the declining um, trust in governments. And mostly it's because people don't trust the government they have, but they're, they're not really sure what government model they would trust either. <laughs> okay. But when you get to businesses, when a business starts to act like a central authority, I think they're in trouble. Hmm. And that's what you, on those big platforms that you've talked about, it's when they behave as if they're a central authority over the populace, where it becomes a problem. Because as soon as they're acting as an authority over you or me in a way that's incongruent with what we think, we don't trust them. And so let, let stay away from becoming the central authority is my point, And don't misuse the data. Only use the data in a way that's been authorized. So, I mean, I just, and when the authorizations are too general, um, then people say, well, I never thought they were going to do that with my data. Yeah. And that's where the, that's where the mistrust starts to emanate. Don't you feel there's a bit of a push-pull there, though? Because one thing that a business wants is, they're incentivized by making profit. And what you're talking about, like maybe you can explain it better to me, how not becoming that central authority or not having a monopoly on a certain sector, it's great for business. 
But like you said, it's not so good on the trust factor. Yeah, but it's the, the way that some of these businesses and platforms have used data is so far beyond the purpose of why people were interacting with that business or platform to begin with. I mean, I'll just, I'll just use another simple example. If, if, I, if I go to buy an insurance product from a company and the next thing I know, I'm getting pegged to buy flowers. I'd be like, I, I didn't go to you to buy flowers. I came to you for insurance product. So, and all it means is they're going to make a, they're, they're making a commission off of the flower sale. So I don't trust them anymore. Like, why would you do that? I didn't, I came to you because I needed insurance. And I can, you, there's all kinds of examples you can use on this, right? Like I, you know, I, I went on, uh, you know, on a platform that sells products and I went looking for a product that was dish soap. And the next thing I know, they're, they're selling me dish towels. I might find that okay because it was dish soap. Next thing they're selling me is perfume. I'd be like, well, where's this coming from? And the reason is they're reselling a name and contact point, point of contact to somebody that has a completely different interest than why I was interacting with them. Hmm. See, and that's not really technology. That's a, that is a human decision on the governance of the platform that teams need to make. And then that needs to get manifested in the algorithms, but they're pushing it in many cases, you know, much, much further than what the original authorization was for the use of someone's data. Yeah, let's dig into that point a little more because it, it goes back to what we're talking about, right? This is mm -hmm. not a technology problem by any means. This is something that people are making the decision to be okay with this. At some level, they're okay with it. And then you're having technology augmented again. Correct. Um, so, so I think I'm, I'm back to the what's the primary purpose that the user came to interact with the business. And if I came to interact because I'm looking for work is very different than if I came to interact because I'm looking for a place to go on vacation. So when I'm looking for work, I don't want my data taken and used to present vacation offers to me. <laughs> I mean, some people might, but you could give them that choice. Use my data for whatever you want, present it. And so that, I think it's in the specificity of how you can use the data because I, I fundamentally believe, you know, we all have data that's being gathered by many, many different places, right? So let's assume for the moment that everything you do is being monitored and there's data on it. After that, it's, it's, there's two concerns. One is the authorization of how that data is used. And the, the, the one that I do think is emerging is going to get worse on us is how that data is being used um, to, pre to present the individuals. In other words, the authenticity of it. Mm. So one is, are you using the data to, to, to come to me? The other is, how are you taking that data and presenting me to others? That's the authenticity mm. point. And there's all kinds of biases in that presentation of me to others. I say me, I'm talking about any human. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that point on how we're effectively, with all of that data that we're collecting, we're showing 
a lot about ourselves and someone could then say, well, what is this person like? And you get presented to others in this way that is through your data. It's not through what you are actually like. And maybe, I mean, there's part of me that is a little bit like, would this not show a side of people that maybe others need to see or it shows people in a more real way uh, because well, yeah. it shows so, a real side of someone? So if there was no bias in the algorithm, I would, I would agree with your hypothesis, but I think we've established there's not an algorithm I've seen that doesn't have bias in it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean... <laughs> yeah, it's a great point too. It, it's very, very true. We're not at that level at all and not even close. We're not even close. To where, yeah, to where we can take it out. And there's so many different layers of the bias, as we have also established, that it's yeah very interesting when you look at that and you start to say, you show this is effectively, I mean, we talk a lot about personal brand Right. It's like there's your personal brand being projected out. No question. Mm-hmm. There's no question that it's being presented out. Right? So I'm wondering about the this idea that you spent a lot of time at PwC. You were vice chairman there. Mm-hmm. And for you, do you see auditing these algorithms as being a crucial role or is it more in the human level or is it both like we were mentioning? Do you, do you feel we need to put up some bumpers for yeah, the so, algorithms themselves? Yeah. So uh, I, I think we should have bumpers. I don't know if when we, whenever you use the word audit, it can have very specific meaning. Okay. Around the scope of the work and what the report is, et cetera. So let's stay with the bumper thing for a moment. I think there needs to be bumpers that that can independently validate whether the algorithm is doing what has been disclosed. So what the user, what the, what the owner of the algorithm thinks it's doing, and then is it doing what they've told the, the users, i.e. the people that have collected data, is it actually doing what they say it is? Is it functioning properly? There is a role for independent validation there, definitely. Because you know, when I, when when I think of um, you know why are audits, for example, of financial statements so important? Well, mm-hmm. they help fuel an effective and efficient capital markets and commercial trading markets. So, without that validation of some type, you don't know what's really valid or not, right? You have no level. It's just to, ins- it's a, to increase the um, probability that something is right, which also helps to build trust. Right. And it's, it, to me, it's a probability question. Do I ever have a hundred percent probability that what I'm, what is ever sitting in front of me is what it actually appears to me? I'd say, no, you don't. Not when it comes to information or algorithms, you never really know, but the independent validation helps to add credibility um, and probability that what you're being told is what's actually happening. And do you feel like these are going to be stamp of approvals that we get? Like when you look at some food and it says certified organic 
Or how how do you foresee that being played out? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's, um, there's ISO certifications, there's lots of types of certifications out there that are done by independent parties. Um, I do think that the credibility of organizations that focus on building trust play an important role in facilitating the provision of that trust around the functioning of AI. I think that is, that's, it's already happening in some cases and I can see where that will continue to emerge. It'll, mm-hmm. it'll bring, it'll gain more and more momentum. Mm. I mean, now you can, obviously you can get trust from distributed sources, but the first question then is, can I trust the source that is giving me the answer, the independent review? Yeah. Right. I mean, um, there was somebody that I interviewed yesterday, actually, uh, Mark, who was talking about how you don't let your students grade their own homework. Correct. Or you don't want you don't want a business. I, I, he made a great point on how he's never seen a company fail their own ethical framework that they set up. It's like a company sets up an ethical framework that they're going to follow. He's never seen a company that says, well, we set up this ethical framework, but it was a little bit ambitious and we didn't achieve our goals in completing this ethical framework. Yeah. Yeah, the the independent standards or framework should be established by independent um, open process, open due process with comment periods from, you know, so, so you take the aggregate of the collective participation to get to what you believe is the best open standard. And then you hold people to the executing against that standard. And the validation comes in is, do we think they performed what they said they were doing relative to the standards that we've openly agreed are good standards? Mm-hmm. And that's like UL listings and everything else. They're open standards. Like that's why they work. Yeah. Yeah. It levels the playing field and also helps people understand what good or what good enough is or yeah. What uh, proper looks like. I think that's important too. really making sure that everyone sees where the bar is. Yeah, and it, and it creates a, uh, it's where the bar is, and it creates a uh, mechanism, I'll say, to compare across various units or companies. Like, mm-hmm. how do I compare a thousand companies and whether or not they're being responsible with AI? We need to have some set of standards to do a common comparison, because the way they get applied is different in every company. Well, this brings up a great point too, especially when it comes to using AI and human resourcing and and matching. And how do you feel about this being considered high risk and this being considered something that is, is high stakes, we could say, because it is affecting lives in a way if you get a job or if you don't? Well, I think if if you're turning a blind eye to the potential biases in the algorithms, I think it can be very high risk. And I kind of made this comment earlier, which is then you can execute bias at scale. Um, 
which would be undesirable by, by any measure, right? And so if you, if you study the risk and you understand it, then you can take actions to mitigate it. But making the conscious choices um, about where you want to eliminate bias and, I, you know, some of those simple examples I gave earlier, are you just going to no longer have names and pictures on resumes for the, for the purposes of doing a match? You can make strong arguments that that should be the case. There would be other people that say, I absolutely want to know their name because I'm going to use that as a basis to determine who I want to hire. Well, that would be a bias because hmm. it has nothing to do with their, their capability of executing the, the role or the project that needs to be done. Hmm. And so I think it is high stakes for companies to be explicit and conscious, I'll say, about how they're thinking about the use of AI in the way that they source human capital. And at the risk of beating a dead horse, yeah. <laughs> there is something really interesting that you're talking about here when it comes to biases and, and allowing of some biases in, consciously making the decision that we are going to go with this bias. And... I'm wondering, it's going back to what we were talking about earlier, but when we talk about allowing in certain biases, do you feel there is, that is okay in some moments or if it's a cultural thing with a company or if they consciously are doing it and they're recognizing they don't have it in other areas or they don't recognize other biases in other areas? It, basically, I'm wondering, is it okay to, to program in these biases in, into the different software? Yeah, so um, I think in cases, it could be okay to put in a bias, okay? Mm. Um, it, as long as that bias, and by the way, no matter how hard you try, you'll always have some bias in there, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the unconscious piece of it. But... Um, you may decide that you want to bias. Like I, I, I would say that uh, maybe you want to make sure that the person has a PhD in chemistry. Because you believe that to do the, the role, they need that PhD in chemistry. That's a bias. Maybe somebody with a PhD in physics could do it, but you've determined it should be a PhD in chemistry. Do I think it's okay to put that bias in there? Yeah. And because you're not you're, where, you're not distinguishing on other personal facts. You're 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 using that PhD in chemistry as a minimum level of it's a, that's an independent certification of another type <laughs> against mm -hmm. standards, and you think it's okay to only have PhDs in chemistry to do that job. And if we start looking at some biases that you feel you've or you've seen being put in that you feel aren't okay to be putting in, do you have some examples of that? Well, I think the most obvious one is uh, years of experience. Mm. That's an that that arguably is an age bias. Now, I'm sure somebody could make a counterpoint and say, no, it's not because you need a minimum number of years. But the way that kind of in the in the in the main the way that years of experience gets used is tied to age and it says, great, 
then I know that this person has got sufficient experience to, you know, I think this is a, a 40 year old that needs to do this or I mean, that would be the most obvious one to me. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So let's talk a little bit before we wrap up about what you are doing with For Humanity, because I've had Ryan on here and they're actually sponsoring this season. And I would love to hear the work that you're doing. Can you explain to us what, why you're doing it and what you're doing? Yeah. So um, I'm doing it because, you know, as a, you know, my heritage coming out of PwC for three decades is, um, you know, PwC's purpose has been to build trust in society and solve important problems. Right? So there's, there's a DNA around trust that's so critical, that's important to me. And then um, I have a lot of years of experience, speaking of bias, right, um, helping to establish open standards around internal control and risk management. And how do you, how do you run a process to get standards that in fact people can buy into and will use to, for, for others, I mostly the ones I've done are for companies um, to say that they have a standard. So it's the Committee of Sponsoring Organizations Internal Control and Risk Management Frameworks. I was worked with them for 10 years on those. And so um, making sure that you engage enough varying views to get to a standard that's applicable and has a set of inviolate principles that can be applied is critical. So I've primarily been that's been my work before humanity is helping Ryan think through some of those processes and how to think about, you know, how much time do you spend trying to get agreement on what a standard is? How, how much um, is the breadth of people that you bring in to get that perspective? Right. So. Yeah. And I, I love that idea. And this is one that I've thought about quite a bit recently and it's talking about blind spots and really how we can uncover blind spots. And it ties into this with the bias and how we can uncover bias. And I'm, I'm wondering for you, as you're looking at these different standards and you're trying to make them as robust as possible and as complete as possible, how are you making sure that they are robust and complete? Yeah, so... The, for me, the, the robustness question is, one is, what's the, the, both the breadth and the depth of, of involvement that you have of the constituents, right? So when you think about the responsible AI for, you know, for humanity is doing, um, that's starting at a very broad topic, <laughs> right? Because AI is now you know, embedded in every part of just about, you know, the modern world's life. Um, and so it's, it's more, it's mostly about the, how broad do you cast the net of input? And are you being comprehensive and thinking about the constituents that could potentially be impacted and, and how would that, that impact occur? And you use that as your framing against, um, do I have a complete set of standards? But you can't 
you can't foretell that with a group of 30 people or 100 people. You need to go to the open, basically crowdsource the input on what that would be so that you can get mm. enough varying views. It's not a matter of, you know, 10 or 100 people getting in a room and concluding that these are the standards. It's, it's much broader net than that should be cast. Mm. Well, it is not an easy task. And no. I really thank you for the work that you're doing. I have one last question for you before we wrap up. I know we're getting close to the end of time. Miles, I'm wondering, are you a robot? I am not a robot. <laughs> I don't believe, not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not maybe, opposed maybe, to it though, it sounds maybe like. Maybe someday, you know, I'll start to evolve to being a robot. One kind of one piece at a time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, it's been a it's been a pleasure, Miles. This has been fascinating to talk with you about what you're working on and really how you see the state of affairs right now. It's enlightening to hear your viewpoint and also get this wisdom and experience from from you and what you've done over the course of your career. It's really incredible. Well, happy to um happy to be a part of this. And, you know, I, um, I'm just, I'm just working on what I'm passionate about. So it's a lot of fun to do it. Appreciate the time. Awesome. With you today. Awesome to see. So. Yeah. Excellent. Take care, Miles. All right. Thanks, Demetrius.